Good morning. Giving it up for the Badgers, right? Yeah. In the great state of California, they win that. I just wanted you to know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's like a perfect combo, right? Hey, don't you feel like hope when you drive in? It's going to get to 50 today. The sun is shining. Like, it is so good, right? Yeah, I feel that way too. Well, we've been in a series called Words to Live By. And this morning will not disappoint, I promise you. For the last four weeks, we've been talking about words to live by, really, that have to do with more with you in your relationship with God. And we've said around here, uh, you have a relationship, a personal one with Christ, but it was never to be lived in private. That personal relationship was to be lived out in public. And probably the most difficult thing for Christians today is to hear words to live by when it comes to words that we're to live by with one another. And I want to I unpack a passage this morning that we'll do kind of the first part this week and then the second part next week in Matthew chapter 18. But I want to just ask you just this question and to think about is why do you think the church exists? And when I say church, what do you think about when we think the word church? Is it the building for you? Is it the programs? Matthew chapter 16, we've talked about that several times in this church. We've talked about Jesus going to Caesarea Philippi and asking his disciples, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ. And remember Jesus' response, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. What did Jesus mean when he said he's going to build his church? Did it mean that he was going to build buildings all over the world? Did it mean he was going to create programs and worship teams? No, what he meant was you. He meant you and I sitting together and gathering as often as we could to celebrate the wonder of who God is. The Hebrew passage says that do not forsake the gathering. Not because we have to take offering, not because children's ministry has to be done. Do not forsake the assembling together, as is the habit of some. But it says to celebrate and to embrace more and more. It's the opportunity to encourage one another. Why do we gather? We gather to be encouraged because you probably come in one of two different ways this morning. One, you came and your basket is full. You came this week and you said, I got, I got to see God do great stuff this week in my, in my life, around my life. And you come just can't wait to, to sing this song and about giving your offering, and you can't wait to serve and plug in and begin just to be a part of the community. Others of you came, and maybe the basket's not so full. And maybe you're saying, I, I'm looking for some hope. I'm, I'm looking for some of that runoff of you reminding me about Jesus saying that the church will prevail. Jesus saying that he cares for me. Jesus saying that there's hope for a lost world. All those things. Friends, we gather for that reason. And I don't want you to mistake that this is not an information download. Today is not more knowledge for you as Christians. It may be stuff for you to take in as knowledge, but friends, the Word, the Scripture, the Bible is useless in your head. 
It has to transform your mind and move into your heart and life, and it needs to change the way we live. That's why we're saying words to live by. Not words just to know, but words to live by. Reminds me of the, the, the passage that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 7, and he says uh, this words right here. Uh, I better turn this on. Sorry. Everyone who hears these words of mine and, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. In other words, Jesus is making sure we hear the, the things about God in your Bible. And some of you have picked this book up. Some of you haven't. You're more than welcome to take any of these. We, you can have these. These are our gift. Because we take serious this book not as just head knowledge, but as something for us to begin to live by. Not just in our relationship with God, but how we, we interact with one another. Reminds me of the story of the gentleman um, way back when, when they had no cure for rabies. He was walking in his neighborhood and got bit by a rabid dog. Rushed him to the hospital, tested him, and the doctor came in with just the terrible news and saying, listen, I'm sorry, we have no cure for rabies, uh, and you're going to die. It's terminal. All we can do for you is to, to make you feel comfortable and uh, to just you know, do whatever we can to make you feel well-fed and comfort. And uh, the doctor did say, he says, I would suggest that you get your things in order, your life in order and your plans in order. It's just overwhelming news for this young man. And so he, he said, could I have a pen and a piece of paper? And the doctor gives it to him. The doctor leaves for about an hour and comes back to check on his patient seeing him out of his bed and just furiously writing, 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 writing. And the doctor was just encouraged, saying, wow, I'm, I'm encouraged to see you have this surge of energy to, to, to take care of matters and your will. And the guy looks up and says, will? This is not a will. This is the list of people I'm going to bite. When I, I laugh at that too, and then I think, gosh, that feels more like church in our culture today. I, I, it's sad, but if we were to kind of survey the stories that people have had in the church today, it's a lot of biting. Uh, it, it's a lot of passing on a sickness and a hurt to someone else. And I want to give you this morning Matthew 18 as a great passage of Scripture of amazing words to live by, but mark my words, probably the most difficult passage for you to live by. Uh, you, you'll see in a minute, it's probably the biggest struggle you'll have in your Christian faith, living this one out. And so let's dive in. Matthew 18, I can tell you're just overwhelmed with excitement now that I'm going to share this with you. Couldn't you skip this one, right? Uh, it's in Matthew 18, and there we go, Matthew 18. Verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. He's in Capernaum. He's in his hometown. It says, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them, just Jesus, and said, truly I tell you, unless you change, become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, who takes the lowly, whoever takes this lowly position of a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. We're going to break this out this morning, 
And I want to give you five principles that Jesus teaches in this discourse. That means he is going to respond to this one question. The one question is, who is this greatest? Who is the greatest? And I'm going to give you these five, you can call them values, you can call them perspectives, but it's to change the way you think and eventually operate with one another and behave around one another. So it's a question that these disciples ask, and so at face value, it's not a bad question, right? It's not a bad question. It's not a ba- I mean, I, could you imagine, you know, I'm sure critics are going through the, the Wisconsin game, and they're rating out of the, out of the, the four they're going to be left, the teams, who's the greatest out of those, who's ranked, even how they get into the seedings, they're ranked. We, we, we don't think anything of this, but let me just dive a little bit deeper. You see, in our sinful way, we're always measuring people up. In fact, if there were a, a scale on here and, and the top being the, the most special or promised or, or uh, important people, we have a ranking system. And if I were to just let you kind of have free reign and, and rank the top person and then the worst of the worst person on the planet, you would have names, I'm sure. But let's not be so extreme. Let's make it even more simple. Things like you drive through Green Bay and you see some of you who love to wash your car like every other day, which is awesome, and keep it clean. I'm like in your camp. Someone puts stickers all over their car. They haven't washed it maybe in 30 years, right? Do you think anything? How about even a little bit deeper? You go to the grocery store and moms... There is a parent there that's obviously not paying attention to their kids, obviously have not disciplined their children, right? It's just obvious. What are you thinking? Could you be asking the same question or even answering it for yourself? Huh. They don't have, they're not as good as me or as good a parent as me. We could go about money. We could go about morality. I just had someone who... Trish and I were with, and they're a, a chain smoker, and uh, they don't necessarily know God, but they, they felt bad about that, and you know, while it's damaging to your body, and we know that that's obvious, they obviously felt judged and ranked by that behavior. How, how many of us find ourselves ranking and judging people? Truth be told, all of us do. Even some of you probably rank me. I know, I'm like right next to Mother Teresa for a lot of you. Um, there, thumbs up. Yes, thank you. But because I stand up and I talk about God or I know some things about God, you have a ranking system. I'm sure if we were to go through everybody in this room and start to deeper dive on this, this question's not that odd for them to ask. But think about who they're asking. They want to know Hey, Jesus, out of us disciples, kind of rank us, would you? Who's the greatest? Now, Jesus is going to now unpack the rest of chapter 18. He'll be only asked one more question by Peter, but he is going to now unpack the answer to this question, and he does it very brilliant, brilliantly, and I want to share these five things with you. What doesn't Jesus do in this? What could have he have said to this question? Me. I'm the greatest. I mean, doesn't Jesus have permission, being the Son of God, he's walked on water, he's calmed the seas, he's 
raised people from the dead. He's, he's healed the sick. Couldn't he have said at that moment, worship me, I am the greatest. Jesus not only is going to answer this question, he is going to model the answer to this question. It says, and he called a little child to him, so he doesn't even say anything. He just, he calls children. It'd be like me calling all the kids up here and sitting with me. And he said, truly, unless you change and become like little children. Let's stop for a moment. In the culture at this time, uh, children and women are not valued. I value them. I said that last service, Trish. I said, I value women very highly. Scored points last service. Uh, but back then, they didn't count in a, a courtroom for testimony, kids or uh, children or women. Uh, and they weren't expected to speak into things. It was pretty normal for them to be silent. They were seen, but they were not necessarily heard. Okay? Now, because of that, Jesus is going to answer this question because who does he pick out of the ranks? Because at least the adult women of that time had responsibility, and I'm sure, let's just be honest, spoke into the lives of men, you know, say, uh, upon closed doors. For the children, they were what? They were needy. They were, needed protection. They needed food. They needed being cared for. Jesus picks the most vulnerable of people. He picks children. He says, unless you change, you become like little children. The word change means change, but it means more than just changing your mind. It means moving away from a way to think. And Jesus unpacks this and says, unless you become like one of these. Now, what he's not saying is, I want you to start to act childish now. You know, do childish things. He's not saying that. And Jesus is going to use this kind of conversation about children, both literally about our kids, but he's also going to say about young believers. Young people uh, who in their, in their faith they are young. So you could be in your 70s and just received Jesus Christ and you are one of these children that he cares for. And so he uses this and he says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you humble yourself unless you bring yourself to that posture of a child. You know, children are amazing and, and children have that kind of that innocent sense about them of longing for their parents, of when, I remember when our girls were young, I could be in a crowd like this and I could say, you know, Haley, come on up. And she would, wouldn't care what you had thought, she would, because she wants to be with her dad. Jesus is saying, I want you to have that kind of trust and followership as children do. The same kind of picture. It says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly posture of this child is the greatest. Isn't that beautiful? He says, if you offer yourself up at that level, with this kind of an attitude, then you can be my disciple. The first point I want to give is that you have to have childlike humility. Jesus answers this greatest question by saying, to be the greatest, you have to be like a child. You have to have humility like a child. Humbleness, a dependence on a parent, on a family, on a father. It's very different than answering the question, right? Kind of rank us, Jesus? Because in our way, we like to see who's more important. But Jesus is saying, no, I want you to think differently about you. You're not that important. 
You're like a child. And I want you to enter in thinking, having a childlike humility. What does he say next? He goes in now in verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, these little ones, those who believe in me, there we have it, anyone who believes in Jesus, to stumble, it would be better for them to, to have a large millstone hung around their neck and need to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that have caused people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person for whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter your life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. It's a really exciting passage this morning. Um, couple thoughts. First, he says, those who believe in me. I'm just reiterating, he is saying both literally children, but also I want you to get a biblical perspective of he calls us children. And I want you to have a childlike humility as you enter into relationship with me, but also one another. And he goes, I want you to understand that the punishment for causing people to stumble uh, it would be like, you'd be better off. Remember that game, Would You Rather? Anybody played that game, like that question game? It's like disturbing, right? Would you rather like cut out both your eyes or cut off both your hands? It's like, is there an, that's terrible. I don't want either. Jesus is answering this for you. Better that you tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown in the sea. So I'm just going to go forward here. Uh, a millstone. A millstone is used to crush uh, olives, grains, and grapes. It would be driven usually by an animal or a donkey or people pushing that large stone that would go circles. Jesus is saying, better that was tied around your neck and thrown in the water to drown than to face the judgment when you cause people to stumble. So, so let's just backtrack here. What does it mean to cause someone to stumble? See, I grew up in a Christian culture where I heard, I grew up around people saying, well, I don't drink alcohol because I don't want anybody else to stumble. And that was an easy one to talk about. But let's take a deeper dive. How about this one? The scripture calls us to gather and assemble together. It says that when we cause someone to stumble, it means to lose trust in their parent. It would be like this. If you entered our home, let's say one of you is adults, and talked to our children when they were young and said, hey, by the way, uh, Lauren, Jacqueline, Haley, and Alex, when, when your mom and dad talk about this, you don't, don't trust them on that. They don't really mean that. I mean, what if I did that to you as a parent? I walked in and said, hey, when you, when you are instructing your kids, I tell your kids, hey, come here for a minute. I know they said this. It's, it's not really what they mean. So let's think about all the things in our faith. Maybe you go home and you have a problem with somebody and you're saying, you know what, I can't forgive that person. And your kids hear that. Or young believers in here hear that and think, huh, you must be able to operate that way as a Christ follower. How about we don't have to be a part of the church. We don't have to use our gifts in the church. That's only if there's something available the scripture says you're a part, you have a gift, you have something you're supposed to use. You give permission for the younger ones not to do it. You model 
something very different than what the words to live by of Jesus gives us. Do you see how this can go? So we like the the big ones, you know, drinking and not sleeping with your neighbor's wife and all the ones that are obvious, right? I'm talking about the respectable sins, if there's such a term, the ones that we kind of deem okay just about how we behave. Jesus is saying, woe to you. What, What does he mean by woe? It just means woe. Step back, listen very carefully. It says the world is going to offer ways to wander away from God. The world is going to do that. It says the world's going to do that, and that's going to happen. John 17 says that, where Jesus' prayer says the world's going to throw at them options and saying you don't have to listen to God. But it was he say, but woe to the person who starts offering that distraction to young believers. I don't know about you, but we have a very opinionated world, don't we? And I see sometimes the emails, the Facebook, the the Twitter, all these different things, and whether it's policies about homosexuality, whether it's, it's governments, whether it's presidents, all this stuff out there, and I just wonder sometimes the message we're sending, is it the words to live by that Jesus is saying, or is it our opinion? And when we do that, do we cause people to stumble? See how dangerous this passage is? Because it's saying, be very wary about how you operate. Friends, I just told a couple this. We were talking, two couples, we were talking about Christian schools. Trisha went to his Christian school, I went to a Christian school. Definitely like those environments. But friends, Christian schools do not fix your kids. They will not grow your kids up to love Jesus more than you modeling your faith in your home. What changes a church community is when people are committed to living by the words that Jesus said, no matter what it costs them. And this is exactly where Jesus goes in. He's saying, verse 8 and 9, it's not about body mutilation. It's saying that moving away from sin and living as God's called us to live causes some sacrifice in your life. I mean, think about it. To stay away from sin is difficult. I mean, some of you, I, I don't know, we, use, we say this often, no perfect people allowed, right? If there's anybody perfect here this morning, the ushers will now take you out of the service because you're probably lying, and then you're not perfect, we'll re-bring you back in. <laughs> but I think, isn't it true, we're all flawed, and we all struggle with sin, and we're, we're trying to figure out ways to stay Uh, Be encouraged to live by the words that Jesus has given us. Do you see this picture? Not only we're to have childlike humility, but we're to have this childlike care. Oh, I don't want my girls getting the wrong impression of what, that you can hold grudges against people or you can talk about people behind their back. I don't want to cause them to stumble about how we use our money or how we spend our time or you don't have to be a part of a local church. You could just live out your Christian life in independence. No, friends, I want my kids to see what it means to model that. Jesus is saying, hey, the greatest question, humble yourself like a child and care for everyone that calls themselves a Christ follower that way. That's a different picture. Start to care for one another that way. Oh man, I want to encourage the people I'm sitting next to this morning. 
You see how carefully that starts to, Jesus makes us look now at ourselves, how we say things, how we do things. When do we share our opinion? Friends, can I say that I love our country is giving us the right to speak, but your right to speak in a biblical community is never, never allowed out of hate. It's always in love. In fact, you're supposed to push edit button when it comes out without love. That means it's not offered. That means you make sacrifice on your own personal preference because you choose love. This doesn't mean immorality. This doesn't mean wrong living. It means we are to be a community that embraces with this childlike care. Where does he go next? So see to that no one despises one of the little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. It says, what do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing to let any of these little ones perish. It's just for a moment, let's think about this. How many of you have been, you've been on vacation or a trip with your kids when you, uh, you know, maybe your kids were younger or they were younger and you just don't remember it, but you lost a kid? Anybody? Like you found them, right, hopefully. But some of you are like embarrassed to raise your hand. You're like, I remember we used to live in California. We used to have Disney passes, and so we would, we would often, like Trisha said, I don't want to make dinner, so let's go to Disneyland. No, she never said that, I promise. We would say, hey, let's, let's go for a Friday night. Let's ride a couple rides and head up there, and we would. And I remember one time, I think it was at Disney World, though. I can't remember which one it was, but I remember we lost one of our kids. Man, everything changes, doesn't it? when you've lost one of your kids. Now at that moment, as Trish and I are in panic to try to figure out where one of our kids are, do we still care for the three? We have four daughters. The three? We're not saying we don't love you. We're out. We're like in desperation because they're already found. And it, I can't remember how we did it, but I'll go here, you take one, I'll take two, or whatever we did, but it was a frantic pursuit for the one. Jesus is saying here, if one of the believers wanders off. What does he mean by wander off? Wanders away from their faith. Wanders away from the picture that God wants us to live by. And let's say it's in sin. Let's say it's they're starting to behave in ways that are contrary to the words that Jesus called us to live by. They're wandering away. They're starting to stumble. He says, will he not leave the 99 in the hills and go look for that one? God's establishing through Christ. He's saying in his words, he is going to pursue the one. Now in culture today, in church culture today, we have these two big words, discipleship and evangelism. And we've postured churches today which kind of church are you? Are you discipling church? Are you? And then there's a measuring about churches, believe it or not. It's gross. It's sick. Friends, they're, they're together. We are to continually disciple ourselves and grow ourselves up in Christ and take the words that he says from our head and begin to live them out in our hearts and our lives. But friends, we're to pursue believers that are wandering. We're, we're to go get them. 
That's a sheep wandering off. How many of you, by, by just show of hands this morning, know someone who, who knows God but has wandered off? Hands high. Wandered away. Look at that. Look at that. The Scripture says we're supposed to go find them. And then it's like there's a rejoicing party. It's like we found them. We brought them back. Not only are we supposed to have this childlike humility and childlike care, we're to have childlike pursuit. It's that frantic pursuit of someone's missing. When you sit in groups or talk here at churches, where is such and such? Uh, you know what, they're taking a break or they're off or they're or wandering away. The scripture says, Jesus is saying, quit trying to measure yourself on where you're at and start to care with humility, with a sense of pursuing lost people, people that are wandering away from that. Again, these are people that know God. These are Christians. This is how the kingdom community, Jesus said, I'm going to die for the bride, the church, and nothing is going to stop it. The gates of hell can't prevail against it. I'm going to build it. He's talking about this, and he's saying this is our part to pursue those people. He goes on, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go now and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that in every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Now, hold on. Here's what happens. If we're not worried about where we rate with other people and we enter into our relationship, we sang the song, I surrender, Lord, have your way in me. If we enter in that way and we see others that way, then we have a childlike care and we have a childlike pursuit. Now we recognize someone who has sinned against us or is in sin. What do we do? Jesus now says practically, this is what it looks like. If your brother or sister sins, Go and point out their fault. It sounds really fun, doesn't it? In our culture today, if you were to go do this, there's two postures typically that the, the party bringing it has misunderstood and warped, and we think we're supposed to like Bible slap people, you know, and tell them about where they failed on the ranking of spirituality, right? And go, blam! Look how bad and how far you've fallen. When you enter in with humility and recognize you're just as fallen, when you come with that childlike care, when you pursue that way, you're seeking restoration for people. Friends, in a, in a biblical community, there needs to be a sense of covering each other's back. I need a board of elders to cover me. I need friends in my life to cover me. I need our community group to cover me. I need people in my life that are willing to sit me down alone when there's a problem. Every one of us needs that. Every one of us needs that. Jesus says your first step is to meet with those brothers and sisters and go point out just between the two of you. Notice what he doesn't say. Hey, just Go bounce that off about five friends, right? 
go ask for five other friends to, to start a prayer list, right? Because isn't that what we do? When we've been wronged, the greatest question starts to surface in our own flesh, doesn't it? How dare they? Or I can't believe, and we rank them. And then we like to go over here and go, well, I'm just going to meet with my brother and say, friend, I have this friend named John, uh, and I give him his name, and I say, would you just pray for me? Why am I doing that? Counselors will call it triangulating. Talk, it's, it's sin. Because you're operating and saying, I want to gain some justification for my ranking. I want, I want a better perspective about me and if I'm right and they're wrong. Do you see how this is the biting in the community and how it destroys community? It says, if a brother or sister sits, go and point it out just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. How awesome is that to sit down with a brother alone or a sister alone and saying, friend, man, I want to call you back to the words that God's called us to live by. I know it's difficult. I know I've struggled, but this is what he wants. How do we help move you back to that place? Think about my daughters, and one of the first things we all teach our kids, right, is how to understand and respect, what, streets, traffic, cars, right? You don't win in a car collision, right? And so when they start to walk or that, one of the things is the crosswalk. And you say, red means stop, right? Yellow means hurry across the street or don't start at all, right? Caution. And then green means go. But what if one of your kids, what if one of my daughters walked across and got it mistaken and walked across when it's red? Do I just sprint out there and clobber them and say, I can't believe you got it wrong. You're terrible. You're so dumb. Uh, that is a lot of the, the perspective about peop what people do. In the church, they think they're there to show how spiritual they are and rank themselves, and you're wrong and I'm right. No, I don't want my daughter to be hurt. I don't, I don't want her to do that because I want her to live, to live in safety, to live in a, a, a season of having flourishing years in her life. I want her to have kids. And don't we want that for one another? Changes the perspective, doesn't it? When we have a childlike humility, when we have childlike care, when we have a childlike pursuit, it also calls us to a childlike correction. And here's what he says. He says, take two others along. And he says, so that two or three witnesses. Why? Because he says, after you've gone with one and you've restored them or they haven't restored, I'm going to tell you now, take two others don't announce it on Facebook. Don't start to grant an army, but take two or three others. And that was permissible in court. It says, if they don't listen, tell it to the church. How about that one? Now, churches do this, and I don't know how that works, but think in love. Could we do that? And why would we do that? The best way I could illustrate this is imagine if, if this fall the Packers had adopted a, a new way to play the game. They'd said, we're just going to suit up 100 people. There are going to be no numbers or jerseys, or there's going to be no numbers in the jerseys or names. You're just going to have to pick who the real players are to go out and play every Sunday. You're just going to have to figure that out by how they're dressed. You go, that's ridiculous. You've got to call out who actually are the players. Part of the reason God is saying, 
you need to call out the difference. He's saying you need to call out to the community that living this way is not how I've instructed those who love me to live. You're not trying to judge someone. You're saying it's very different. And he says if they don't listen, treat them as a pagan. Oh, we either want them to know they're living rebelliously, right? And how do we treat someone who's living rebelliously? Well, we should still love them and pray for them. But it's saying you need to make sure that people know there's a difference. Friends, if, if I was up here every week and you knew, you knew every week um, that I was sleeping around, that I, I, was, I was with other women, let's just say, and, and you all knew it and you kind of begin to over time, maybe you didn't accept that, but you might start to accept it. We can't do that. At some point, someone's got to call out and say, that's not how God's called us to live. I'm living in rebellion. Now, I'm giving you a huge, radical picture. Let's bring this down to a practical picture. What if I'm gossiping about people? What if I'm I'm struggling in some of the ways I'm treating people? And And you're noticing, what if there's pride that's seeping in? At some point, we have to begin to differentiate What does it mean to follow the words of Jesus? And this is why this is so powerful for us. Not so that we can use it to rank people, but so how we know what does it look like to follow Jesus. At that point, tell it to the church, and I love this twist. And if they refuse to listen, what does it say? Treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Again, I love that the New Testament always says pagan, someone who doesn't know God, and even a tax collector. It's like the throw in there. Even the worst of the worst. I don't know if it's for us, it's non-believer and then terrorist. You know what I mean? How did Jesus treat the writer of this book, Matthew, the tax collector? He loved him. He went to his house. He not only loved him, he loved all his friends who were tax collectors. What is the lesson here? Friends, when we begin to see that it's not about ranking one another. We begin to see it's about us having childlike humility and childlike care and a childlike pursuit. It also means that we begin to have a childlike correction. We start to then love on people as they're believers and we're trying to get them back to the faith, get them back to restoration. And if they don't know God, we're saying, wait, we recognize you really don't know God. And that's okay, we just know now to think very differently and to treat you in a way that we want you to know the love of Christ by how we're going to love you. I meet with couples quite a bit now that don't know God, that want me to marry them. And I've kind of made a point of, if at least if they don't know God, some of them probably think they know God because they've attended church, that I will as long as I can share about what it means to love God and what God talks about marriage. Now immediately I know most of them are living together and that's like the the gut pastoral reaction is to go, tell them to stop doing that. But then I'm reminded, wait a second, they don't know God. Why would behavior ever fix a soul? It doesn't. And so then I can think of them very differently in saying, I want to share with you the love God has for you. 
The behavior I know if they come to know God will eventually change. Now, if I have two believers, well, then it's a question. You're not supposed to do that. Not just because God's a boring God and he wants you to, to suffer, because he will help us live in all fullness. It'll help us experience more joy in our marriages, in our lives. You see that difference? This is how we're to call people towards this holy living in the Christian community. Last section here says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven again. Truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree with anything about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. The abuse of this passage would be to say, you know, we're going to be a section of us that are going to meet together next week when the Badgers play in North Texas. And if we agree together, right? We're all good. God's going to give it to us. <laughs> the best way I could paint this picture is this way. Uh, God wants us to have childlike unity. So not only does he call us to childlike humility, childlike care, childlike pursuit, childlike correction, he says, I want you to experience and have a sense of childlike unity. There's nothing better than when our family is connected and together. We're getting two of our daughters back. We loaned them out for a week at spring break. They're coming back today. The best way I can explain this is what Jesus is saying about this kind of unity. He's saying when brothers and sisters gather together, it's like when, when people begin to play together music. See, it's one thing I said in the beginning. If you just know the notes and music theory, it's not really good, is it? It doesn't really help you. What helps you is when you pick up the instrument and you begin to play. And when you begin to play, and you may only know a few notes, but you play those notes well. A lot of Christians today know a lot of things about God, but it's the ones that you're playing in your life that become beautiful. And when those get played in a sea of believers that are all playing the notes, it becomes a symphony. It becomes a symphony. Uh, a famous conductor once they was asked, what's the most important instrument? And in jest he said, second fiddle. He said, because when someone can play their heart out and not care where they are in the ranking, he goes, it's beautiful. I think for us in Matthew 18, what it says for us this morning is, are we entering into community with a childlike perspective? One where we could admittedly look at our own lives and, and confess. Friends, I sin and I struggle with it. And I know that I will not completely be free from that struggle until Jesus returns. I know that I am free from the penalty of sin because of Christ's death and resurrection. We'll experience that in a couple weeks and celebrate in Good Friday and Easter. I know that that authority in my life, I don't have to, that doesn't have to have authority in my life anymore, but I still struggle on this earth and so do you. The beautiful part of Matthew 18, I should stop worrying about where I rank and am I entering into community this way? 
If we start playing this kind of symphony, if we start experiencing this, because the word agree, when it says when two or three agree, the Greek word means to symphonize. It means to symphonize. It means when we start to agree together this way, Jesus is saying, you play music for a world that's hungry. When you start to love that way with people that are wandering off, you blow the city away. And I don't know about you, but I want to reach Green Bay. Not for my fame, but for his. And I want a symphony played. And I want to be able to say that there's a lot less biting here and there's a lot of music being played of people being restored into the kingdom. Amen? Father, as we go to communion this morning, the first song, that song we sing, I surrender. Father, will you have your way in us this morning? Break apart anything that's causing us to think that we are to rank ourselves amongst others. God, will you call us to look to the left and right this morning and see us like children? Help us to see one another that way and help us to have that childlike humility, that childlike care and pursuit and correction and unity. God, might you do something special with this symphony and allow us to play in such a way that brings glory to your name in this city. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, might we celebrate that your son took the humble posture. And we can too. In Jesus' name, amen.